Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. I'm Katie Gordon, your associate professor co-host for Jedi Council Podcast, and today I'm going to talk to Dr. Leonardo Bobadilla about his important and interesting blog post, Restorative Justice and the Me Too Movement, the Kavanaugh Hearings as a Case Study. Leo is a clinical psychologist, an associate professor, and a friend of mine from grad school. His work focuses on integrating research and clinical practice to effectively reduce human aggression. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to say something to all of the listeners who have been upset by some of the comments that people, including some with substantial power, have said that minimize or mock sexual assault or that blame survivors for what happened to them. It's really painful to hear these comments, particularly from people who have influence. Please reach out for help and support from friends, family, or a therapist. And I know it can be really hard to reach out. So let's all also do what we can to check in with our loved ones and see how they're doing. In the show notes, you'll find links to mental health resources related to sexual assault. Now to Leo. Hi, Leo. How are you doing today? Hey, how are you? Doing great. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk about this important topic with me. Of course, my pleasure. Yeah, it's, you know, it's been in the news and I feel like this is something that understandably a lot of people are paying attention to. And I feel like it's a good opportunity for psychologists to help get accurate information out because there's certainly inaccurate information that can be out in the news. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. So you started out your blog post with a quote by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford during her testimony before the Senate panel on September 26. I'm going to play that now. Sexual assault victims should be able to decide for themselves when and whether their private experience is made public. Can you talk about why you chose this particular quote to open your post? Yeah, so I think as um, I was listening to the hearings live, as many people did, and of course, I had the point, as I was kind of listening, and I was really struck by her how she was thrust into the national spotlight when she did not want to be in a way that we do not demand of anybody, really, any victim of any crime. Do we seldom just thrust them into the limelight about something that can be so, not just private, but traumatic? Um, And she very, in my opinion, very bravely used that involuntary podium in which she was placed upon to make a really important point regarding sexual assault and um, the victims of sexual assault and something that is uh, it strikes me it's, it's at odds uh, with how the a lot of the justice system works because and I mentioned in the, on the blog post that our system our, our both law enforcement and justice system relies in many ways I mean you know it's very 
quick, ready um, reports of crime. And our Constitution requires that we have speedy trials. And that goes directly against many of the wishes of people who suffer um, uh, sexual violence because it's such an intensely private and traumatic event that people are going to want to process that at their own pace, uh, as as we as clinicians are probably more used to, um, or not at all, you know, and divulge it at all. And I thought that that was a really central statement that got lost in, in the process as she became uh, an emblem and a figure uh, on both sides of, you know, a, a debate that's going regarding sexual assault and politics and everything. And, and, and I thought it was an important statement and that she managed to capture in a very clear way. And so I thought it would be important because I come from, I come from, I, I came into the, into the blog post from both a, a perspective as a, as a victim's advocate. I see myself as a person who is a very strong victim's advocate and I worked as a victim's advocate uh, for domestic violence after my uh, bachelor's degree for a year or for a few months before I went to grad school and then uh, working with offenders. And I also see myself as a person who is a, uh, a strong advocate of the, the rights of the accused and those people who have committed crimes. So coming from that, that perspective, um, I thought that that was an important opening statement. So I, I chose to highlight it and then use it as a platform to think, you know, okay, so a person who wants to achieve justice, we, everybody who has who suffered some crime or is a victim of a crime would like to achieve justice. And how how can a person who uh, suffers such a grievous offense achieve justice in a system that relies on not just speedy, but often public airing of, of offenses? And that goes very much directly against the wishes of the victim. So that, to me, it seemed like a direct tension or contradiction within the system. Um, and she definitely just kind of pointed to it. And I think that, that I wanted to start with that, uh, the article with that because of uh, all of those reasons. I really I appreciate that, that sentiment. And, of course, in this case, it's, it's really a clear example of non-ideal situation at all right i mean she oh, she was yeah, very no. clear about that i mean it's with a huge spotlight on her talking about this there are a lot of people influenced by political reasons who are asking questions or making assumptions about it when we step back and kind of look at the bigger picture though your post talks about some of the research that affect people's decision not to report sexual assault in general what what are some of the key components involved that that seem to be related to the decision to report sexual assault or not right yeah so the bureau of justice statistics has uh, some interesting data looking at people who have reported or not reported um sexual assault and when it when it comes for reasons uh why people report uh one of the reasons people tend to report uh um a crime the most the, the single the, the reason why that was cited the most often which is about 28 percent in the latest um iteration of the study of the of the data collection the, the people reported because they wanted to protect somebody uh either themselves or somebody in their household from further crimes by the offender and i think that's an important point to make and i think we, we talked about it in the previous podcast that i was on that uh, contrary to perhaps common fear um, people who suffered both domestic violence but sexual violence, 
it's somebody that they know and it's often a person in, in their household. So oftentimes they report the offender because they're trying to keep themselves safe in their own home from somebody that they know very well. Or um, in cases of, for example, child abuse, uh, they want to protect somebody in the household for it. So th- those are reasons in which they're often cited. So that's about 20, 28%. About 25%, uh, they want to stop the incident from occurring or from escalating. So, you know, accounts for about a little bit over half of the people. And the rest of the people fall somewhere in between wanting to catch the person and revenge because they believe in the system and they feel like it's their duty to report the crime. Um, now, on the other side of that coin, for people who choose to not report, uh, the majority of the people who say they don't want to is because they feel afraid. They, they report that they are generally afraid of fear of reprisal. And if we, again, weave that back to the fact that many of the offenders are often known to the victims, um, we can see how that is a very real fear, a, a very real concern. It could be somebody who has power over them. Um, and as we've seen as part of the, um, during the uh, Me Too movement, um, yeah, the, the, the aftermath of the after Me Too movement, oftentimes those were people who, unusually uh, men, that had a power and influence over women's uh, careers or families and in a very real way used that power uh, and oftentimes re- resulted, did result in reprisals. So those concerns were often cited by people who did not report, um, in addition to considering the, the, the matter very personal. And again, that goes with Dr. Blasey Ford's quote. This is a, it's a very personal experience. When I think about the times in which I have been, um, the very just only two times that I've been a victim of a property crime, that's the only times that it happened to me, I did go through this point. I was like, well, I guess I'll report it. And one of the reasons I reported it is because I wanted to get reimbursement for insurance for the car because it got broken into. And the other time it was because um, I wanted the landlord to know that what happened and it was the brick and didn't take anything value really. But it just kind of wanted to like check that box basically. But I fully knowing that nothing would come out of it because it was random. And by the time it happened, the police showed up. It was just a long time ago. The chances that it would be caught would be remote, but just to make that report basically. Uh, but that is such a different, I mean, radically qualitatively different experience from somebody who experiences sexual assault, who then going to report is not a minor hassle. It requires the person to go truly very invasive, not just questioning, but oftentimes, and many, many, many times, very invasive medical procedures. And it is really traumatizing. And unfortunately, there is a wide variance, wide variance in uh, in the way that different um, police departments and jurisdiction deal with sex offenses. And uh, those that tend to be in larger cities or have uh, close partnerships with for example, larger criminal justice departments and universities, they tend to have better access to resources versus other places that may be rural or less well-staffed in which the victims, the, the, the victim going through the process can feel, of reporting the crime, can feel traumatizing all over again. And even when it is as helpful and very um, victim-oriented, it is, it's not easy. It is very, very difficult. So... Those are powerful reasons, and again, that, that tension in between the the victim's desire to 
not report because of that intense trauma and then the need for the system to have a way to deal with the offense uh, are at odds with each other. And I, I became interested in, uh, in, in within, that's within our system. So I thought, how could, how could, you know, how could Dr. Blasey Ford achieve justice? How could, the, how could we have a better system in which um, the, many people, many victims of sexual violence might achieve a measure of justice that does not require re-traumatizing, reliving this thing, or find a more, um, a more meaningful, restorative way, and that literally is the uh, the the word of well, the term that is used for a completely different approach, restorative justice, in which I became interested um, a few I don't know about two three years ago, more seriously because one of my graduate students was very much into restorative justice, and I started um, learning more about it, and it really changed my mind about how I think about or how we think about the justice system. And I really think that it is a, it's a, it's a model that we can perhaps um, further adapt, uh, in particular for um, sexual abuse and perhaps in particular for sexual abuse that may have occurred a long time ago, uh, you know, and for example, in the case of Dr. Blasey Ford decades ago, uh, in which there were both minors and a lot of things have occurred that limit the scope of retributive justice, the justice system that we have right now. And how can we use a different system that may be able to achieve uh, a level of justice that may feel, uh, not just feel, but may actually be uh, better and get us to a place that uh, achieves justice for both the victim and in a way, I am also to the offender. So that's where I decided to go with the blog post. Thank you. I, that's, I really appreciate that example. So as we talked about, this is an unusual, certainly an unusual circumstance, right? The, the reason that Dr. Blasey Ford said that she was speaking up is because she was concerned about Kavanaugh being appointed to the Supreme Court, right, for a, li- for a lifelong term. And so that, I think... Of course, is not the typical circumstance, but something I found really helpful in your blog post is that you looked at it, if that were not the case, you kind of drew out another alternative scenario that would be more consistent with a restorative justice model that helped me to understand exactly what it means. Would you mind walking us through that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So restorative justice, um, you know, it, it's a it's a process, and I, I should say that it is. It has been around as perhaps you know as humans have been around. It, it's basically a concept that has been rediscovered. We want to think about it, but it has principles that are based a lot on approaches that are frequently used in Aboriginal uh, and Native populations, in uh, notably in like New Zealand, Australia, but even, and also in North America. But essentially, you are flipping our in, in our system, in our current system, what we call a retributive system. The crime is seen something as an offense that is, you know, against the person, but is also a violation of the law, the rule, and it's against the state. And it is up to the state to administer justice, to decide what are the what are the penalties and how they will be carried out and meted out. And the victims are peripheral. Yes, there there are victim statements, and there are oftentimes, but once the process is going, um, the sentencing is seldom takes into position. And there may be victim statements, but Oftentimes, the victims' opinions, statements, 
um, do not have a uh, bearing into the punishment and how it's meted out in our system. Restorative justice approaches turn that upside down and they consider the the offense as what I think it's really what it is. The offense is an offense against the, the other individual, but also against the community. And as much as, as and, and as you know, broadly defined, in as much as you can involve the community in order to make everything whole. So you try to get the offender, the victim, and the community to come together to collectively identify what ha- what are the harms, what has happened. What are the needs for this person, for the offender, to considering the offender, you know, this offender didn't get here by accident. It is when the offense did not occur randomly. What were the circumstances that brought the offender to this place? And how can the community collaborate in order to um, put things together as much as you can, recognizing that things are never going to be the same? But as much as you can, you're going to try to heal together so that the victim feels heard, understood, and that their um, hurt is used productively in a proactive way to come up with a solution that is satisfactory to them, helpful to the offender, and heals that wound to the um, to to the community. And I, I, I'll be the first one to say that I, I when I first started hearing the formalized uh, the formalized version of restorative justice, I immediately, with my student, uh, her, her name is Allison, I was like, oh my God, that sounds so very hippie, and like, give me the data. And immediately, I was like, you know, fine, that's fine, but because I was very much a very, uh, my training and my thinking when I came to it, I was very, um, and when I did my uh, internship, my postdoctoral internship, and my postdoctoral work, I worked with offenders and thinking, conceptualizing an offense and a, uh, as something that the offender had control over, right? Uh, the, the, the belief, the central belief of cognitive behavioral therapy in many ways that uh, we all have free will and make choices and by making, changing our choices how we think we change our behavior more or less. But this really turned it upside down because I did, you know, working within the, the legal system, working uh, in it, uh, both as a psychologist um, in a state hospital, as an intern in a prison, and then in the courts, um, currently my private practice, you start seeing the inequities within the system. And you start very quickly, I mean, it's it's very easy to find those inequities. And then you also find, uh, into what's, what to me is really interesting, is how victims feel left out of the process and how they often... Uh, you know, and this is a, a, an amazing display of humanity. When victims say, "You know, that is not something. That is not something that I would have chosen for that offender." When they find out what what when the uh, what the sentence is, they're like, "Whoa, that is either too much or." Uh, and you see the more poignant cases of that in uh, in death cases, uh, in uh, yeah, in death penalty cases, uh, in which there are families of the person who was um, killed. That say that they, do, you know, they actively advocate against the death penalty for the offender, um, and that is such a different way of thinking. And when I started looking more into restorative justice, can I? And, I'm sorry. Oops, can yeah, I, yeah. Can by I all ask means, go for ahead. clarification? Just one thing. You said that um, through your work in the justice system, you saw inequities. Would you mind 
saying a little more specifically about some of the stuff you saw? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we can. I think I, I can say talk about stuff that I saw, but I think it's stuff that we we all see. I mean, you 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 just have to open um, a newspaper every day, and you will see that there are people who are being, for example, in states that have three strikes or out laws. A person may have a probation violation, and all of a sudden they're going a violation, probation violation, or a minor offense um, that may have, you know there could be a, sl- a, a small felony, and that sends them to prison for life, or have a possession of uh, a person has a substance use disorder, and then they are sent back to prison because they have possession or they were trying to they were selling drugs. Well, then we also and they, these people tend to be often poor. Um, and lower SES status and not surprisingly oftentimes um, of minority status versus people who may have a lot of resources and money are able to get away with a whole lot more. And then it it, it is not uncommon to think about or to see that it's, it's also almost like there's a, a two-tier system for those who, uh, people who have resources and access to money and good defense versus people who have to deal with a regular justice system. Um, I think um, I, I was mentioned uh, Serial. I don't know if you listen to Serial, the, the, the podcast, the kind of this offspring of This American Life. Mm-hmm. But they're spending the whole season on a look at uh, the justice system and precisely that, the, the, the wide inequities that exist within the system in which um, a persons are given disproportionate sentences for minor offenses uh, because we, in many many states, have taken this kind of hard approach to justice system in the erroneous thinking that the you know the stiffer penalties for certain offenses is going to reduce the the number of those offenses when the rea- the data don't seem to support that you know and there's debate but that's kind of where I fall on that uh, and then I started looking at more of the restorative justice data and finding um, greater and the data are nascent. There's there's a lot of because approaches very slow comparatively very slowly filtering through the criminal systems in Western industrialized nations. Um, the data are spotty and it, it often um, relies on surveys of the victims and satisfaction. Um, but there is some data suggesting that uh, it may help reduce recidivism rates. It, it increases satisfaction with the process and compliance with rules or what, with whatever is the sentence. There's increasing compliance by on the part of the offenders because they feel involved in the system and lower recidivism rates. So when I look at that and I think, well, isn't that isn't that what we're all looking for when we think about justice and a justice system? Don't we want to have a sense in which everybody, all of the parties that are involved in as part of are, are come together because of an offense that they come out of it feeling better rather than worse or making the uh, the inequities within the system worse. And I really started thinking about how how to use restorative justice. And to be fair, this is not you know my, this is not this is not a new idea. Uh, it goes in tradition, but um, there's a lot of uh, based on the work of uh, Howard Zayer. Um, who really kind of reintroduced it and uh, formalized it in the 1970s. And it, it's been filtering throughout um, North America and Europe. Um, New Zealand um, does a really good job with it. So, Well, that thank you for explaining that. I think that one of the main points, like you're talking about, and I haven't worked directly within the criminal justice system now in, in a while, but even in the three years that I was there and just trying to keep up on it, I, I see what you're saying. It does seem like this 
sentiment that the harsher the punishment, the less crime you'll have or something like that, or yeah. the less likely they'll repeat it or something. It's, it's hard despite the data to go against that kind of instinct of doing things. And what you're saying is taking a more complex view. It's certainly right. taking a step back and saying, you know, we're really looking at all involved and looking for the best outcome for society for the victim and also for the perpetrator. And so I think that when you say that, it seems like that would appeal to a lot of people. What is some of the resistance or do you hear as objections to that idea? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of the critiques that have been uh, that have been made are well, quite frankly, the same the same the same that uh, the same that I had when I when it, I initially started learning about it was you know do people really because it seems like you're just not really punishing the person, and then when when you know restorative justice advocates and people who train them they're always like yeah we're not trying to punish the person you're like what mm-hmm. and it really blows your mind a little bit. But then I really thought about it, and you know, what are we trying to do? We we have a system that does that punishes, and then we the idea that we have to rehabilitate and change this person takes a secondary or tertiary seat to uh, constraining and punishing the person. But in really, if I am, if I, and, and as I am, if I am really truly interested in reducing the incidence of these offenses then we have to do something about helping the people who engage in these behaviors. And that is that is exactly the reason why I started the research. That I, you know, that's why I decided to go to grad school and pursue the line of research that I chose. Because as a domestic violence um, advocate, um, one of the things that you would all, I would often hear uh, would be complaints by even by advocates or people who would be around them or when they would hear what I would do, uh, you know, they would just say, you know, so why doesn't she just leave them? Right. That's always like, why doesn't she just I'm like, wow. And because it's complex, oftentimes they're economically dependent. There are children. There are true feelings of emotional dependence. There's a lot of things. But then I started thinking, you know, it felt like a lot of it was blaming the victim. Why can't why can the, the, the victim do this or do that? Then I thought, you know, who are the people who are engaging in this behavior? If we really are going to do something about this problem, it seems that it's not mostly incumbent on the victim to take care of it, but rather to look at the sources of it. So I started becoming interested in, in, in the offenders. Like, who are the offenders? Who are these men, mostly, or uh, in general, on average, tends to be mostly men, who are engaging in these behaviors, and why? And then once we start figuring, once we figure out those reasons, then we need to fig- we figure out why and what are the factors that influence them, then how can we change them in order to reduce their incidence? And I was basically caught in my own contradiction. You know, I, I was like, oh, I need to do something. Well, here's a system that has as its focus both the victim and the offender and how to reduce the likelihood that this occur, will occur again. Uh, and it's not because what people immediately have is this idea of a group, you know, there's a mediator and then there is the offender and then there is the victim and that he's going to get off easy. And I... I, I would challenge people who think that to to really think about a time in which you know we've all done stuff that is wrong and we had to apologize for. Think about that time. Was it easy for you, minor or major as it was? Was it easy for you to admit to yourself that you were wrong, that you did something wrong, and then to face that person and apologize and make amends for it? It is not. It's not an easy process uh, for anybody involved. And if you were to multiply that by you know a factor of several times 
depending on the offense. That is not an easy process. It is just it is not an easy process. And um, contrary to popular belief, a lot of the perhaps idea is that people think that people who commit crimes um, just enjoy doing them, and that is that is not the case. Um, working with prisoners, working with people who are in the system, they are very frequently racked by uh, guilt. They feel responsible for what they've done, the consequences they've had in their own life and in their families. Uh, so those ramifications create real harm, not just for the victim, but also for the offender. And if we can figure a way, and if we, we can figure a system that takes care of both and increases the well-being of both, and it results in low recidivism and increased peace, you know, why not try that? Thank you for describing the restorative justice system and what it might look like. In your blog post, one thing that I thought was really helpful was the hypothetical example you used. If there had been different circumstances surrounding Dr. Blasey Ford when she first disclosed being a victim of sexual assault, and you kind of walked through what things might take place after that if it was through a restorative justice lens. Do you mind giving that as an example now for our listeners? Yeah, no, of course. Um, so when I, after hearing her testimony, I started thinking about the issue. So um, I like to I like to do a lot of kind of thought experiments, and I thought, imagine, okay, let's imagine that we could just travel back in time to when Dr. Blasey Ford was reporting to her therapist uh, that she had been sexually assaulted. And we could then, if we had a restorative justice approach system already in place, um, by which she could then have a neutral uh, private uh, intermediary, a, a third party that could then reach out to Judge Kavanaugh uh, and approach him with the complaint, the concerns, and then her recollection of the offense and what had happened. And he would have been willing and able to sit in a, again, private, neutral meeting to hear her experience and then and one of the main points that I made in the in the, in the post is that I, I I had I cannot pretend that I know anything regarding whether it did happen, at whose version to believe. I'm I'm trying to be as completely as agnostic as I guess I possibly can in the issue, but imagining that in this third meeting we in this um, meeting in which they had in the past, uh, they would have been able to hear themselves in a in a very mutually respectful private way and let's imagine that he were to admit it that he would be able to then offer uh, a way to you know she would express her her experience talk about what her life has been like the impact that he's had in her life and he was able to offer his express his remorse uh offer apologies ask for forgiveness and then mutually uh find a way to move forward and I think that um, if we think about her, the sentiment that she expressed, her extreme reluctance to be in that public forum and her being thrust in it and her desire for privacy that, uh, that a sexual assault victim should have the right to disclose their, uh, their incident publicly or not at their choosing, this would have been far more respectful of that. And if I put my... Um, 
my you know when my acute my advocate of the accused hat on it certainly would have been better uh if it if, if that would have been a way in which he would have been approached as opposed to a public hearing in which both both parties were exposed publicly in a way that I have to believe neither of them would have chosen and would have much more likely been re- resulted in uh, a more mutually beneficial, far more, and I'm going to use the word restorative, restorative process for both of them. I think that we would have gotten closer to ju- true justice than where we're at now. And so, yeah. That that helps a lot. And, and I do think that, I think it helps as an example and also I think that, again, if he wasn't being considered for a Supreme Court appointment, you could imagine even going through that process that if that came up, there might be, well, it might influence her decisions, too. It's it's hard to imagine. Right. But just but hearing that, I think that that helps to describe what it might look like. One question I have is what about the factors that make certain incidents good fits for restorative justice? Like, are there certain characteristics yeah. that people might have the perpetrator or the person or the the victim that would make them a good or not as good candidate good for candidate. this that's a great question um and it, it, one that the data are and the data are both people who are very involved in it are starting to think about um the the restorative justice pro, uh, approach has taken most it has really taken root a lot in juvenile justice systems uh and, and I think in here, in, including here in the U.S., a lot of school systems are adopting restorative justice rather than try, in thinking about disciplinary approaches. They're trying to think about uh, how to bring restorative justice as a way to manage conflict and heal whatever occurs in school rather than taking disciplinary actions that then further harm students. And similarly, in the in the adolescent juvenile justice system, restorative justice approaches are taking hold. And I think... Part of that is because um, the adolescent justice system, we do consider it separate, and uh, we tend to think of adolescents as, you know, they're st- as what they are. They're still forming, and the idea that you can still that you can perhaps have a larger impact in a younger person and turn them away from whatever path they may be going uh, more effectively if you take that process. So. I think that um, that the, most of the data that is really promising uh, has a lot of work to be done with adolescents, and um, a lot of the data, which, you know, there's reasons as to believe as to why that might be an effective approach. Uh, another approach uh, I think that has been it, a lot of it has been tried in, in here in the U.S. As far as I'm aware, a lot of it has been done with post sentencing, uh, and this is where it becomes difficult to tease out a lot of the data for the restorative justice because all of it requires as, as a as a foundation is that there's a voluntary, nobody's forced into restorative justice. So essentially we're having a self-selected sample. So as you know, uh, and you know, as you know, so in, in a scientific approach, we want to, as much as we can, try to have, uh, to avoid a self-selection bias. So these people are highly motivated to be in treatment or highly motivated to engage in a system that uh, restores them. So maybe they are higher in agreeableness and more likely to be more resilient, but then maybe restorative justice would not work as well in people who may be less so. That we don't know because unfortunately, well, maybe not unfortunately, we, we, we simply cannot just do a randomized controlled trial in which we assign people to restorative justice versus 
retributive justice and then decide and, and then, you know, 10 years later, see who does better. That's ethically dubious and it's just highly impractical. But what we can do is look at what, what I think should be done more frequently is looking at cross-national and cross-cultural studies. And uh, so many nations, and I'll, I'll point, I think New Zealand is perhaps uh, the, one of the leaders, if not the leader on restorative justice approaches. And it would be interesting to see as much as we can in match offenses and demographics and see you know, which country tends to have lower recidivism rates, how, you know, in happiness and uh, with the system and in the process. And they have both approaches. They have both retributive and restorative. And I think there's the, the promising data would be coming from those areas. The one, there's one consistent um, pattern that does emerge uh, across the, the, the literature is um, the the concern of having people who have high psychopathic or very narcissistic or manipulative traits, which are overrepresented in the criminal system. That is just um, a feature of, you know, it's one of the correlates, if you will, of people who have these high traits. So because they're overrepresented, uh, one of the concerns is that the people who may, ha- who may be high in those traits are going to be trying to use the system to game them or to gain access to the to the victim in a way that is going to be re-traumatizing or re-victimizing, and that is something that people who work in uh, restorative justice are very uh, observant and they definitely do a lot of screening. Uh, for example, here in Oregon, we have a fairly vigorous restorative justice approach. It's all post-sentencing, um, but victims can initiate a process by which they want to talk to their offender. So um, I, I happen to know somebody who is a mediator, and she goes into the Oregon Department of Corrections, and she facilitates meetings between offender and victim. Um, and But she's also in charge then of doing the screening process of both the victim and the offender. And also, oftentimes it's also, uh, you, they do screen the victims as well because they want to make sure that the victim is going to be ready, psychologically ready for the process, that they are doing it for reasons that are self-healing rather than in a way kind of vindictive. So there's screening on both sides. So I would say that the main, the main rule out, if you will, is going to be uh, people who have a high psychopathic, narcissistic, manipulative traits, um, and or people who may be on the offen- on the on the victim side, people who may be psychologically vulnerable uh, and may not be ready for the process yet, because it can be very taxing. You're going to be talking about things that you may find out things that you're not ready for, uh, and this this is the part for me where it gets. As somebody who, as as you are, uh, we were raised on manualized treatments and very systematic approach. That's when it gets a little unstructured, <laughs> to be structured with my mm-hmm. comfort, uh, and it, it becomes a you know therapy that that becomes that process more in- instinctive and more art than than science. And I, I will admit that is kind of where I get like, what happens if you do this? But um, Again, the, the data that are, are are there are pretty promising. So I think that those would be the um, the, the the big rule outs. Uh, and um, I think one of the things that is in talking about cross cultural studies, in looking at some of the successful stories um, that exist, and the ones that I, I always bring it up when I do presentations 
uh, are uh, in Rwanda and in South Africa. The Truth and Reconciliation, and I talked about it a little bit on the uh, on the blog, but in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee did nothing but that, essentially put people who were um, cogs in the apartheid system to go and apologize and acknowledge what they've done to victims of it in the hopes of creating a new South Africa that was not going to tear itself at the seams as it was coming out of apartheid. And, you know, you can say what you will about the process and where South Africa may be here now, but the outcome could have been so much worse, in my opinion, uh, in, in, a, in a system like that. And you can think about, I would say, Zimbabwe as an example, a completely different approach, and things could have been much worse. And Rwanda has also, after in the aftermath of the genocide, has created um, these villages in which both victims and offenders of the genocide live together and side by side. And there's really point, I have a link on the blog to a really poignant story about one of these villages and uh, the daughter of one of the, her, her family was killed by this man who is now her neighbor and they live together in peace and working community projects and it blows my mind. Um, yeah, so I think those are those are interesting promising approaches that are, are worth exploring further definitely so uh, three things that that came to mind as you're talking three major mm. things i think the first one it seems like one of the potential benefits of taking this approach is well there are a lot of different benefits but included in them are the possibility of taking uh, changing the trajectory for the person who perpetrated the crime in a way that potentially might reduce the likelihood of them doing that in the future. And so you Mm -hmm. talked about that with the juvenile justice system. And Kavanaugh, Mm -hmm. for example, was there have been other people who have made allegations of of behavior uh, Mm -hmm. against them. And so it's that's another thing to think about, too, is that if something was done where it was, you know, there was a different system where reporting could be done and a lot yeah. of things were different. Could some of those possibly have been prevented? Of course, we have no idea in a single case, but the idea is probabilistically in the bigger picture, could we prevent some people who have who have perpetrated these offenses from going on or who have allegedly, again, I'm talking now generally and not about this specific example. Right. And so I think that's that's a big piece of it. The the second thing that oh sorry were you going to say no something? sorry yeah, the the one thing I was and I mm-hmm. I think that it, one of the things that is it to be it's not you're not just asking for forgiveness and like healing and but you're essentially putting in in action a plan by which the offender will make amends and that will often include you know engaging in behavior that is going to be more prosocial and it is going to reduce the likelihood they're going to do and, and really put in place a an ex, a, a set of actions that will prevent that from occurring. It's not just about, and I think that's part of the part that maybe get lost to people who are skeptical of restorative justice approaches, is that, oh, okay, so the person just gets forgiven and the victim goes away and then nothing. is like, no, no, no. This also puts in place a plan by which the person may be better um, managed, if you will, because they're, but they have a stake in it. They're just not made, they're not made to put, they're not put through it. And one of the problems that we have in our country currently is, you know, overpopulation of jails, people who are there for much longer than they need to be for offenses that may not warrant it. Um, but also we may not be actually rehabilitating people. So we're putting people through a system only to come out and they're going to cycle right back because we don't have 
a community network that will help people remain safe. And that is one of the things that the data do show pretty convincingly, especially as it refers to sex offenses, is that the more you're able to reintegrate this person in a way that is mean, meaningful and pro-social, that they're able to hold another job, that they're able to have family or friend support, they're going to be less likely to reoffend. People who are going to be alienated, people who are going to be not feeling like they're part of the social fabric, they're going to be more likely to see society as something they can rebel or go to war against. That is not going to be helpful. And that is something that restorative justice would bring into the table for, for rest, uh, over or an advantage over retributive justice as we, as we have it now. So I would say that. Yeah, th- thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, you're right. I could see that unintentionally one might focus on one aspect over it and not as much on the concrete actions mm-hmm. that are required. The The other thing that I wanted to follow up on, just in case our listeners aren't familiar and wanted to hear more about, is you suggested, for example, that someone who has high levels of psychopathy might not be a good candidate for sure. restorative justice. And I just, would you mind briefly saying, are we decent as psychologists at being able to assess who has who has psychopathic oh, tendencies man. and who doesn't? Oh, mamma mia. In that five the... words or less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the, uh, that, I can't wait to go to a, com- a psychopathy conference and get pilloried over this one. Uh, <laughs> no, so I, are we good? Um or are we? Yeah, or you know, are we okay? Is, yeah, this is that. This is the analogy that I would use. You know, are we good at determining a person's intelligence? I would say that psychologists are pretty reasonable at determining IQ. Now, is IQ intelligence? That is very much up for debate. IQ is just a measure of it. There's a lot of debate within the field as to whether we can measure psycho- uh, psychopathy. We have then made big strides in developing measures that help us identify people that have a certain type of traits that statistically are related to higher rates of recidivism. So that's very much like an intelligence yeah, where I, where yeah. we're good at identi- where we have an assessment system that is pretty good at identifying things about school performance, right? And it's it's connected to other things too, but that was right. original attention. Okay. Correct. Yeah, so we're very good at that. And because we know that a person that is going to have a high IQ is likely to do well in academics, they're likely to do better in life. Uh, and just like we have a person who it's if they score high on a score of psychopathy that has been developed for, let's say, criminal populations, the psychopathy checklist revised, for example, is one that is frequently used and considered uh, very reliable and valid by and large, uh, because it has a lot of predictive uh, ability for crime for in general. But there are people, and especially as they get older, their PCL scores are going to be reduced because they engage in less antisocial behavior. And people who critique the concept and think deeply about psychopathy as a concept uh, have argued about this idea that we should include antisocial behavior as part of it because... Um, if a person is, it's kind of, kind of a, a double whammy, right? So you, it's a catch-up to the person engages in antisocial behavior. They're going to be psych- more psychopathic. Um, so therefore they are, if they're only engaging in antisocial behavior. And it, it, the people who criticize, criticize it is tautological. Then the focus has been more, and so maybe we should just focus on the interpersonal affective traits. So are they 
callous? Are they unemotional? Are they manipulative? Um, and yes, they are. But those traits tend to be less predictive of the of those crimes, by and large, in, in much data. So it, it's contradictory. It's not contradictory, but it's up for debate. Uh, to me, what it really speaks about is, you know, how 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 are we as psychologists or in general be able to tell how much humans are able to engage in good versus bad, uh, and being and I hate to use those terms because I actually am kind of against that, uh, but how much are, is a, a person able to change? And there are people, um, and probably during the time that we that you and I were uh, grad students, and we talked about a lot of when we were in. Um, in the juvenile facility, not in the juvenile facility, we're working there. We, one of the ways that we like to talk about, especially with the, with the adolescents that were there, we like to look at um, biographies or examples of people who had been deemed in some way just the worst of the worst, that at some point experienced redemption. Uh, and I actually think I, that was one of the, the title of one of the movies that we showed them, actually. Yes, redemption. yeah. No, that's uh, right. Omar Epps, right? Yes, yeah. Ah, yeah, good one. It was a very uh, subtle <laughs> message. <laughs> <laughs> really look for it. <laughs> it's good to be straightforward, <laughs> dreaming. Well, you know, you have to be subtle, like a thrown brick sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's this idea that there are people, and I think we also is a monster. There's a book, or um, but there are a lot. You can think about a lot of cases of people who, who may have been engaging in. Uh, behavior that is antisocial and maladaptive, but something happens to that. Un- you and I, yeah, uh, the one that we also use frequently was Malcolm X, who had that moment actually in prison in which his he was able to turn that internal rebellion and antagonistic features that he had to in a pro-social way to fight um, social disparity. Uh, and I I do like to think about a lot about that the potential so i think that the term psychopath uh, you know when people said that they're gonna conjure this view these images of people who are very scary and etc cetera, etc cetera. and that is certainly a part of the picture but it is a teeny tiny tiny fraction there are a lot of people who engage in very antisocial behaviors uh that are not psychopathic and even then there are those who have those interpersonal affective traits that don't engage in antisocial behavior so I, I tr- I've moved away uh, a lot or matured in my thinking a lot about the capacity for humans to change because I think that I was more of a person who was like, no, you pretty much are who you are by the time you're a young adult. And really, there's a lot of it that you, there's there's a lot of room for change and growth. And that's the good news. That's a, that's a very, that's a very positive aspect and kind of positive psychology approach to, to things. Yeah, that. Thank you for describing that. I really appreciate it. the The only the other thing that I just wanted to briefly mention is the way that you were talking about how following even how restorative justice could be used, even following things like genocide and how impactful that could be, is very consistent with I, a symposium I fairly recently attended. It was uh, on, it was for September 11th, and they had individuals who had been had family members that they lost due to gun violence both in Parkland and in Sandy Hook. One of the things they that the speakers talked about is that the the response to these tragedies both from the interpersonal level, the governmental level, the societal level can have a big impact in shaping what the 
kind of downstream mental health effects are. So I appreciate you bringing up that point, too, because you look at something that's horrible and traumatic and tragic that's happened, and to think that there's something that you could do that could reduce how painful and negative that impact is in any way, I think, similar to what you were just saying, provides some hope and some, some direction for ways to handle mm. things. So I appreciate mm. you p- pointing that out, too. Yeah, uh, ultimately, I it, it, I think that's kind of where we want to be. We want to be moving towards a society that is more peaceful and harmonious rather than less. So, yeah, and being and the key, I think, one of the things that you keep that you've pointed out is being open to what that might look like, allowing opinions to change. You know, yeah. with with data and consideration, of course, but 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 thinking outside of the way that things have been done and and looking at alternatives and including looking at other places that are doing this. So I think that's helpful. And I also liked what you said kind of about the idea you mentioned, whether, you know, not thinking of people as this dichotomy of Mm. good and bad. And so one of the things that we do on this podcast, sometimes we talk about current events, but also most of the time we're talking about mental health through fictional Characters, And so when we were preparing for this episode, you had brought up the idea of Two-Face from Batman and and kind of the duality there and how people are capable of both good and deplorable behavior. And I was wondering if you could talk about that idea as well as how you might explain that from a psychological science point of view. Yeah, yeah. And so I I was thinking about that and I I thought even more after I brought it to because I was like I started thinking a lot about that's perhaps one of the reasons that a lot of that um, comics and um, are very can be very compelling is because everybody has a, an interesting origin story so not no stuff arises from nowhere uh, and when I think um, that's the same case for just humans in real life people are not I think that thinking about a person, it is often, unfortunately, in our discourse, it's very easy for people to put people into categories, and it's a very human thing to do to just categorize people. It's like, oh, that person does good, they're good people, or they do something bad, and oh, they're bad people. Um, but the reality is that humans are very complex, and humans uh, who are capable of doing beautiful, sublime things and are have been shining beacons and pillars of their community have also engaged in pretty um, disturbing behavior. Uh, and I, it was so coincidental and kind of very, I'm not into the whole kind of universe giving you science, but it was really interesting to see that the, the, the verdict for Cosby came on the same day as the hearings. And it really was this confluence of behavior. And it was really interesting for a lot of us who grew up with Cosby and Dr. Huxtable, um, it really it was very difficult to reconcile initially this person who we see, we, we thought was a person who was very involved in education. Uh, his son was killed in a violent crime and elicited a lot of, uh, a lot of empathy and clearly cared passionately about many things that we considered good while also engaging in behavior that was... Uh, very maladaptive and harmful to others Um, and reconciling that and recognizing that people are just not good or evil and I like to think a lot about uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about is uh, how 
sometimes our, our 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 biggest you know our biggest strength is also our biggest weakness um and there should be some kind of superhero that that should be the case i don't know if there's already one mm. but if not i'll come up with it but mm-hmm. it'll be you know it, it really is like if i think if, if if we all take a second to just really think about it what is my biggest strength what are the things that i'm really good at and you think about what how have you gotten in trouble in your life about maybe sometimes you will see that a lot of times you will get in trouble for that and for people who are psychologists the common case is um people who are very empathic you know by people who are into psychology counseling tend to tend to be very compassionate and that is a great noble very good thing to have at the same time people can be too not too compassionate but compassion can get them in trouble because they ain't oftentimes cross boundaries that they shouldn't have because they believe more a person to take favoritism and whatever uh, that may land them. Or what is often seen is that they have uh, compassion fatigue. So that people start just taking all these problems home. You see a lot of that with teachers in which they care so much about their charges that they come home and they're burnt out in a couple of years because they go there because they want to teach. I have a passion for that, but they have kids who have all sorts of needs and problems and they have to deal with abuse kids who don't have food and it just it it takes an emotional toll on them that that compassion that makes them really good at something it also can be a weakness and when i think about because i'm interested in aggression and sexual assault uh i am really becoming more and more interesting and focused on uh the the fact that we all have I, i like to think about humans you know I was actually telling this to my graduate students earlier. We're not much more complex than, I don't know, like a land crab or something. If you want to distill a lot of vertebrates to pure essence, we can think of each other like accelerators and brakes, basically. Accelerators and brakes. We go and stop, go and stop, go and stop, we approach or avoid stimulus. And in a very, very, very basic way, you know, why do people engage in hurtful behavior of others? Because they see a stimulus, and let's say it's actually a crime, they see a stimulus, and they decide that they're going to approach it no matter what. And it could be because either that accelerator is so strong that no matter how much it pumped that brake, it's just not going to work, or because they just don't have any brakes, uh, and then they just start going to engage in whatever those impulse. And then you can see vice versa. People who don't engage are more likely to avoid any problem. They tend to have a very strong break of their behavior. And they think things twice. And they will always consider things. And be very careful. And they are very, very, very careful about not doing and engaging in that behavior. And when I think about attributes like um, aggression, we can think about, uh, and I actually had an editor of a journal where we were talking about a paper. He said, you know, you should do a diagram of a continuum of aggression with both a, you know, proactive and reactive aggression on that continuum in some way and thinking about adaptive ways of aggression and it threw me for a loop because I'm like what is he talking about but really I mean there are times in which aggression and when it's expressed in like as a social dominance and being assertive can be very helpful there are times in which having taking charge and taking control I think of um, those of us who are more into kind of crisis and kind of gravitate towards crisis situations. And you need a person who's going to be able to take charge and not feel scared or compassion for them. There are emergency situations that are, you know, during medical emergencies. Uh, you will see oftentimes there are people who have different reactions to it and some of them are going to be scared, kind of paralyzed by other people kind of snap into action, 
and start directing the process in a very dispassionate way. You need those traits. And you can also think of um, things like ambition. So ambition, is a, it can be a very good thing. That's how we get things done. Uh, it's, you know, what got me through grad school in many ways. I, was, I had ambition to finish this thing because it was interesting and I wanted to do it. I had the drive for it. And then we can think of people who have that very strong drive to do things. Uh, oftentimes, when you, you put it in a social context in, with, in which that ambition is rewarded in many ways, uh, it, it may be cor- it may and this is my this is where I get speculative and I would like to do more research on but it may be correlated with things like um, social dominance and sex drive and then gravitating towards an environment so we can conceive of a person who is very ambitious and very driven and willing to sometimes kind of take shortcuts that other people wouldn't in order to achieve things uh, and then all of a sudden they meet with a lot of success and then that that environment tells them you know you you're the best you're great you should do this you can do whatever you want and they actually let you and we can think of multiple cases of athletes artists pe- artists people who are successful in society in which they get passes that other people do not and if you have that drive and all of a sudden a system around you that lets you get away with it, you can then start perhaps testing boundaries with others and get away with it. And the case of um, God, yeah, Harvey Weinstein is perhaps like the, you know, the, the case study. If I was to do another case study of ambition and drive uh, and also kind of cutting corners and using people in order to get to places and all of a sudden then using that same power in order to sexually abuse others, that's it. That's a really good example. And again, he's not guilty yet so i will say that but you know well, or, well, or bill cosby i'll say replace replace you know hard wine sign with bill cosby or yeah. you know, other people who are there you go so um that's 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 an interesting way to think about it and those the drive that makes them ambitious and makes them achieve a lot of things you see a lot of politicians uh i mean politicians are easy but uh, I was actually there was an actual paper uh, or somebody put it in there is it a paper or a column look, going through the biography of presidents and I'm like how many of those presidents have had some sort of a sex scandal mm-hmm. and and they went back all the way back to uh, somewhere in the 1800s and a lot of them did more than you would expect just by random selection of men around that age it was just, it's really high and you think about um, the we, we tend to lionize JFK a lot for reasons that are important. You know, he mattered. He was a dreamer, but it also, um, there's some pretty sordid accounts of his uh, womanizing behavior at the time that he was, you know, before, during, and, uh, and his presidency. So it's that that duality in which a person is not good or bad. It's just that we kind of have all this capacity uh, to do this, um, I think a, a lot of it. I think about it at a risk assessment. So I do risk assessments in my private practice, and uh, one of the tenets of risk assessment is that you know everybody's capable. You know, we're just kind of at risk of something. Most of the times, we're at low risk, but if you change the the conditions in which we live, how might that increase your ch- your chances of doing something? You know, you know, I'm pretty low risk of me punching somebody in the face, but if you change the circumstances, if somebody comes at me with a knife, I'm pretty sure I probably would try to defend myself and punch them. Other people wouldn't, but I might. So mm-hmm. thinking about the circumstances that may facilitate or may reduce the likelihood that somebody will engage in behavior that is maladaptive or offensive is where we need to be start kind of moving our, our research efforts, I think. Yeah, that's a great point because it's kind of, it sounds like it's an acceptance of 
the fact that we have all these different personality characteristics. People vary on them quite a bit. There are people who are on the high end of what we might call psychopathy or narcissism that would be harder to influence their behaviors in their environment, probably, I mm-hmm. I would guess, versus people who are lower on those characteristics. I think that's safe to say. Yeah. And and it sounds like understanding that, it, that some of the systemic factors matter for reducing uh, that. So, so you gave the example, examples of presidents, Cosby, Weinstein, people who have power and influence over things, and thinking about, well, what what could effectively restrain that or, or or pump the brakes a little bit? And what are the types of general things that you think might impact a situation like that that, that could help reduce these hmm. types of events from happening? Yeah, I I think, hmm. So I, I, yeah, kind of just thinking it from a, a broad, like on a psychosocial, biological culture perspective. So we can think of, cultural aspect one of the things that has been a, a common defining feature is a culture of silence so anytime there is secrecy anytime somebody there's people kind of running around to cover the behavior of another person that's problematic um and i think you know sunshine tends to be the a, a perfect you know the best disinfectant and uh we see in, in systematic in places where abuse tends to be systematic and going from uh, you know the current abuse, the current uh, scandal within the Catholic Church and some other churches as well, and looking at and thinking about, for example, uh, football teams in which there are cases in which there have been uh, players who have engaged in sexual abuse of others, and there's been a cover-up and a, a, a systematic effort to cover those offenses. So changing that culture from cover-up to reporting of the offenses might be helpful um, because it would certainly you know if it may not stop the 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 event that that is reported but it probably would prevent future ones because what we see in this the the kind of cultures of cover-up is that there's just a systematic approach to this multi-year in their multi-victim so that perhaps might be one Um, gosh other things could be thinking about how we i think we've talked about it last time as well but changing how we socialize both our, you know, our men and our women, you know, uh, this idea that uh, it's really interesting in, from a, from a, from an intellectual perspective is interesting. And from a psychological perspective, as a researcher, it's interesting to see the rise of kind of the incel movement or however, you know, this group of men who see themselves as aggrieved because the women that desire are not having sex with them and they're very angry about it is interesting, but it's also pretty disturbing. And, there's this idea that somehow men are entitled to have access to to sex is problematic, uh, and people who are interested in kind of about male and what's you know what's been deemed toxic masculinity um, that is an interesting, but also um, women and how we think about how can we facilitate the system so that when these events occur, uh, women are supported in a way that minimizes the difficulty of the the trauma and the difficulty of having to report this very personal traumatic experience. Um, So I think those will be a help. And and you can multiple different, I think different systems have different vulnerabilities. Uh, I I often, I I think back about, I've changed a lot. I used to love college football for just for the game in itself. 
I don't watch football anymore. I don't think I've changed my mind. It's because uh, I think it supports a, a culture that is not helpful for anybody, just in general. Uh, and when I think about the availability of alcohol during the, the incidents that it has with domestic violence, what it's doing to the players, how it might be uh, the players might be affecting people around them, it's just the whole thing. I'm like, I can't do it anymore. Um, but so you can think of other, you know, different systems need to to think about what are the unique weaknesses or what are the unique facilitators that are that are making abuse more likely in within the system. Uh, and then ultimately, we do need to think about how we treat offenders, because as you mentioned, you know, we all are kind of, you know, there are going to be people who are going to have extreme trait, this trait, this, this traits, and they're going to engage in criminal behavior pretty much all the time, frequently. But uh, the majority of people don't. And then how, what do we do with those people who do engage in offending behavior? And how can we reduce the likelihood they're going to engage in it again and really think about uh, how do we treat them, not just as humans, but also how do we provide treatment that we think is going to be effective? What are the things that do work? And how do we treat them once they come out of prison or once they come out of wherever they're at in order to better reinstate them in society so that the likelihood of this doesn't occur again increases? Um, and unfortunately, here in the U.S., we are doing a lot of things that are not helpful. Having um, the sex offender registries, they don't seem to be very helpful. Canada has one, but it is only accessible to law enforcement, not to the public general. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, it's a very different approach. It's a, so that doesn't sex offender registries don't seem to be helpful. No, the data don't suggest don't support that, and because uh, and then with the sex offender registries, uh, it increases kind of vigilantism, which is not helpful. Um, but it also is associated with restrictions regarding. So the person cannot live near um, a church, they cannot live near a school, they cannot live in a... And this includes sex offenders of all sorts, you know, people who may have offended children or not, people who may... A variety of sex offenses. Uh, and they are heterogeneous and risk levels. And what it has created in some cases, and um, outfits like ProPublica and other uh, really good reporting has done, is that they've found that essentially there are people who literally cannot live. When they're released, they cannot go back to the community where they came, even if they have a relative who's willing to look out for them, even if they have an employer who's willing to work with them. They may not be able to go back simply because there are just no places for them to live, given the restrictions that are driven more by fear uh, rather than true risk. Uh, and I get it. I do understand, like, I do re- understand that visceral reaction that people have towards people who have sex offenses. But uh, I think as we talked last time, people are, are complex and sex, sex offenses are heterogeneous in themselves. And the people who are serial, dangerous offenders like that are, are fewer than the majority who are not. Uh, and we need to be conscientious about how we treat that. Um, in Florida, um, there's uh, New York Times had an article a few years ago. I think it was the New York Times. And essentially, they there was this bridge, and I can't remember the city in Florida, but it was a bridge that was outside of the city bounds, but it was the only place where people who were being released from prison with sex offenses could live. So imagine how much riskier, you know, to think about it, you know, what would you rather have? Sex offenders who are gainfully employed, who are checking in with their probation officers regularly, who have a church that they go to all the time, they have people who support them and help them and can keep an eye on them and they can rely on them if they're having difficulties and they can go ahead and even confide in them like i'm not feel particularly safe do you mind if i stay with you just keep an eye on me or do you want to have 
literally a bridge full of people who have multiple sex offenses unemployed with re- ready access to all sorts of things that are going to be conducive to this inhibition of behavior like drugs and alcohol yeah, and so, yet right and that's unfortunately we are in the latter rather than the former yeah so that's very helpful and i i so much appreciate your time today and i i'll link to the previous episode you were on because i think that point oh, yeah. that you made about the diversity and also going into more details about treatment approaches if if our listeners want to hear more, I, I will certainly, you can find that in the show notes. But I also want to say that in hearing what you're saying, it seems like the overall theme, if I had to pick one, there are many, mm-hmm. is is that there's a lot of variability in what we would consider sex offenses and people who perpetrate them and what victims of those offenses might want and what's in their best interest. And it really involves specifically looking within systems, within communities and within individuals to create a tailored approach that would be most effective in light of what we know from the science and from the research that's available on this, which clearly, you know, as you said, we need more of that, but it's, it's really, it's not a simplistic thing in any way, shape, or form, and it, it really, to get the outcomes that that you and I and all of us want, which mm-hmm. is to reduce these incidents and to try to bring peace to the people, who, the victims in this case, and try to maximize the likelihood of positive outcomes, then it does require this extra care this in in truly assessing the nuances of a situation and creating something that best fits for that situation. Absolutely. I think I, I, I will say that I, I, I consider myself a very social progressive. I'm very liberal. In general, that's kind of my, I will go ahead. That's my disclosure. I am kind of pretty social, liberal, but also consider myself a pretty independent in many areas and also somewhat of a, of a fiscal conservative, quite frankly. And one of the things that is also appealing, if I was to put it that way, is that not only do these things, these approaches tend to work better, but they're they're going to be less expensive. Mm-hmm. It is going to be it is far more um, economically feasible and uh, efficient to have people out in the community functioning, providing you know paying taxes, paying for their families, whatever, being productive members of the society rather than being incarcerated for years and years and years and years and years and years. Uh, and, or um, the alternative, you know, the other alternatives are not working, not being productive members of society, being at risk while being isolated from society. That's, that's just not economic. It doesn't, it doesn't really reduce risk and it's very expensive. So that's kind of my approach to it. Yeah, um, I appreciate yeah. you pointing that out because I think that is another compelling point to be made in arguing in favor of of this restorative justice approach well thank you so much leo i will really appreciate you talking about this i look forward to putting this episode up and is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up today or any final thoughts no i feel like we should have talked more about uh more about comics. I'm like, I don't know enough about Two Face, but I did think I will wrap it up and more. Do you guys do uh, The Walking Dead at all? You know, Brandon has read all of the comics and yeah. watched the show, and I haven't. But if you want to yeah. tell me, I know yeah. we'll have listeners who. No, watch yeah, because one of the things that is compelling. I was I was a huge fan of 
and uh, you know we can I'm not gonna get into debate as to when you stop watching The Walking Dead because I at some point they lost me but uh, <laughs> but I one of the things that was really compelling uh, about one of the things that is really good about the show that really was like oh this is so interesting is because it challenges the viewer to think about you know what would you do you know when all the norms of society are thrown out the window who would you be who who would you be and then we can think of like rick grimes being this despite this apocalyptic um landscape uh he tries to maintain a sense of fairness but eventually the circumstances are dire enough that he has to go against that code and then he's going through this process and that is very very much how I, I tend to think of and conceptualize in, in real life what uh, what how we can think about risk for humans for in general it's like you know for some most of us the the circumstances are not that dire but um, if you think if you know for those of us who were around and were adults during Katrina uh, you don't have to go into fiction but you can think about Katrina and how things were just thrown out the window. Society really collapsed there for a few days for people. And all of a sudden, it was a free-for-all. How would you behave in that environment? Who would you be? Uh, and now imagine that you grew up in a chaotic household in which you had very little parenting. Drugs were readily available. You had to steal in order to feed yourself, which is the story for many people who engage in aggressive behavior as adults. Should we not, as a society, kind of reduce those and find ways to kind of help that person become whole and more productive person. So I think that's it. Yeah, that, thanks for saying that. I think that, like you were saying earlier, that is a big thing in the comic books where they actually take time to show that the peop- the, the villains, even though they're kind of like they are villains, right. they often, at least right. some versions of the story, try to Absolutely. talk about, well, how did, how did they get that way and what factors were they? And they often highlight the things that you're mentioning, having these unstable environments and, um, as you mentioned, you know, interacting perhaps with certain personality characteristics. And so that's... That's pretty sophisticated. I think it was uh, kind of, in some cases, ahead of what the scientific research showed. But it's right. the whole idea of this interaction of individual differences and environment and and how to ultimately be effective requires really understanding that perspective. Yeah, you know, it's uh, interesting you say that. Yeah, I, I will, I will, I, I, that's a great point that you're making because it really, it's almost like this truths have been there i'm running in the literature and are captured in this kind of modern form of literature and then uh we're not going to rediscovering it in science in a way yeah. and that's how i feel about restorative justice quite frankly it feel like we've created this new this system that stemmed from uh, kind of western tradition but then there's this other system that has been there with other cultures is that they have been the cultures that have been uh conquered and silenced for many years and now it's like well, let's maybe think about using that ancient wisdom. And I saw, I'm like, if I heard myself talking this way in grad school, I would be like, who the hell are you? <laughs> maybe we can end right there. <laughs> okay. that, that sounds great. Thanks again, Leo. And we will, well, you'll hear me next time. And my co-host, Brandon, will be back for the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. 
The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.